Hi, welcome again to Healthcare Marketing Insights for the week of June 1st. I'm Chris Bevelo, president of Interval, the healthcare marketing and branding agency that puts on the podcast. And we have with us today, Jackie. Hello. Welcome back from San Francisco. San Francisco and Lake Tahoe too. Oh, nice. (laughs) That's it? Not like Napa Valley or anything else in there? Did you go to Napa Valley? We passed Napa Valley on the way, but... And you've got a good friend that lives in San Francisco, right? I do have a friend that goes to Berkeley. Okay. And so have you gone to Napa Valley? Before? I have never been there. I haven't either. But I've heard good things. I like the movie Sideways. I have not seen that. That's a great movie. Very funny. And to see that. it's kind of a celebration of Napa Valley. Oh. Though in, in one part, the guy drinks like all this swill wine that people <laughs> spit out. It's kind of gnarly. <laughs> but it's a very good movie if you haven't seen it. And I'm sure Napa Valley would be a great place to visit. I know. That's next on my list. I love San Francisco. Have it's you, beautiful. Have you been to Lake Tahoe? Uh, I have not been to Lake Tahoe. Is that California or Nevada? Well, we pretty much, our hotel is right on the state line. Oh. So, yeah, it kind of... So depending on whether you're in the pool or the lobby, you could have been in one state or the other? <laughs> Pretty much. I've always wondered where. You know, I've, I've never been quite clear where that exists on the map there. Yeah, it kind of borders. It's kind of both in Nevada and California. Okay. A lot of casinos. At Lake Tahoe? It's close to Reno. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All right, well, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, you missed some beautiful weather here, so hopefully you had some out there. It was. But now it's freezing again here in this ridiculous <laughs> no. state we Welcome call back Minnesota. to Minnesota, yeah. Uh, okay, let's dive in. Uh, one of the things that, uh, well, we prepare for this every week. And this week we were noticing a lot of times we pull from blogs we've written or blogs we've read and, and kind of Twitter conversations. And we noticed that our Twitter posts ha- are dwindling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we talked about that a little bit. Adam is here with us too, by the way, but he is... He is Mute. not able to talk. He's got a some kind of nasty cold. There he is. That's his way of signing in. We didn't even give him a, a microphone because he, it's not a good thing for him to talk. But yeah. we were talking before we kind of went on the air here about, well, why would that be? Uh, and, and for a couple of us, it was just, you know, it was a busy week. Uh, but I have to say that for me, it's been a little intentional. And some of this... Uh, stemmed. I don't want to give it all the credit in the world, but it really captures my feeling. Uh, it's somebody we've gotten to know through Twitter. Uh, it's a group called the Talstone Group out of Nashville. So do the exact same stuff we do, healthcare marketing, great group of people. Uh, and one of them wrote a blog post. His name's DJ Smith. I believe he's a partner there called I Ain't Saying Twitter's a Gold Digger, which I think is a great title. And he was kind of playing off Kanye West, who had a blog post um, and he, he had written in his blog, this is Kanye West's quote, uh, that said, how the heck do so many people have time to tweet as often as they do? Kanye wrote, I'm actually s- slow delivering content because I'm too busy actually being busy creatively most of the time. And if I'm not, I'm just laying on a beach and I wouldn't want to tell the world that. So then, hmm. so then DJ kind of builds on that and, and says, you know, he's got a good point. Uh, in his question, he says, the question is begged, how do people who are experts, quote unquote, in their respective fields, find the time to microblog every aspect of their day? Do they have their knowledge and skill sets down so well that they don't need to spend time with clients or learning more? Do they not have any thought processes to work through for clients? Uh, and then he goes on to kind of talk about that. And I've thought about that in the past too. Uh, 
right. uh, where, you know, I don't think any of us and some of the people we follow are guilty of that. But there are definitely people out there that you, you kind of look at the balance of how much they Twitter and you say, well, if you're doing this all day, how are you actually creating value in the real world? Right. You know, there are kind of serial networkers, people that seem to be constantly talking to other people. There are people that are always, you know, referring articles and Mm -hmm. and it just makes you wonder, well, if you're on Twitter communicating all day, how are you actually live in life? Right. I don't know. Is that an extreme? Do you think, Jackie? Well, no. I mean, sometimes I feel like people Twitter just for the sake of Twittering just to. I mean, it's almost like a goal for them to see how many posts they can do per day. And I mean, that's fine. But like you said, for adding value to your life, I mean, I don't under, you know, I guess I, I don't know. I'm kind of lost. I, I find it for me personally, it's hard (coughs) to motivate, not motivate to Twitter, but I find that what I want to Twitter about needs to be meaningful and have some sort of content related to the people who are following me. So, You know, if you're constantly tweeting about meaningless stuff or, you know, you're constantly retweeting, then I don't know how much value that's providing. But that's right. me personally. Right. And, and and I find that my tweets more recently have been conversations with people that I know. Right. So I think it's great for them for that. But it's actually got to the point mentally for me. And I got this. I got here with Facebook, let's say, a month or two ago where I would actually be on Facebook going, feel guilty. What, something must be wrong that I have time to be on Facebook. Get off. <laughs> I know, I feel so it was like way. it triggered this emotional feeling of if you have time to be on here, you're not doing something productive. Right. So, you know, get away. And now I'm starting to feel that with Twitter a little bit. I mean, I still check it. I still feel it's got value. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I was kind of knee deep in it, I was on it more than I am now. And, and now it's kind of, uh, it has that trigger effect with me emotionally. Like if I'm, Sitting here, there must be something better I could be doing. Right. Maybe that's, I'm sure I'm going to get blasted in Tweetville for saying <laughs> that. But I don't know. Maybe that's why our tweets have been down. You're more selective about what you're yeah. Twittering about. That's a good thing. And I think that's a good thing too. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's dive into something way deeper than Twitter. In fact, so deep <laughs> that I don't even like to go here because it makes my brain hurt. And that is reforming healthcare. Eek. You talk about boiling the ocean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I don't like going here because there's just so many different angles and opinions and things that need to change that literally my head does start hurting. Uh, and and I, it, a lot of it interests me. So we're going to kind of talk about what perspective should healthcare marketers have for this. But I did run across an article in the most recent Business Week, uh, and I love the simplicity of it and also got a little political, and I like that too. The title was called Someone Must Pay for Health Reform. And what they're talking about here is it's not, you know, health reform in a massive universal cover, all the different things that need to change aspect. But simply, if you want to call it simply, how do we cover the 47 million uninsured in this country, Mm -hmm. which is not the problem. It's a problem. But most people would say that's a symptom and you can fix that. But if you don't fix the deeper issues of process and quality and the cost of care, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, But here's what I liked. It said, you know, you don't hear people talking about this, but they should be. There are really only three ways to pay for universal coverage. Raise taxes, cut payments to medical providers, or ration care. And the point is, you don't hear much about it from politicians because, 
you know, if there were three, you know, everybody talks about the third rail that you're not supposed to touch in whatever topic because it's, it'll electrocute you and politically you don't go there. <laughs> Those are like three third rails, right? Especially these days, yeah. raising taxes. Uh, the last thing people want to do when the economic, economic situation is so bad, no politician wants to advocate for raising taxes right. if they can avoid it. Uh, cut payments to medical providers is actually the one that you're hearing most about. You're hearing about Obama talking about cutting reimbursement. Our own governor, we talked about last week, cut reimbursement payments to medical providers. Um, but clearly, you know, you can cut off your nose to spite your face there. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the folks actually providing the care, so you can't cut too much there. And then the right. really the third rail, which nobody wants to go to this, is rationing care. Right? And here's the quote. Then there's rationing. Actually, there's not. Telling patients they can't have every treatment they want is not remotely on the table. Uh, we're just not ready as a society to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yet some of the statistics you find out there make you go, if we're not able to talk about this, how are we ever going to get past this problem? For example, I have found in many places, and we'll provide links in our show notes, that 30% of Medicare costs overall occur in the last year of life. All right. Yeah. And, and a third of those occur in the last month of the last year. So a third of a third is wow. 10%, 10, 13%. So 10% of Medicare costs occur in the last month of people's lives. And when you think about that, <laughs> I mean, if there was some magic eight ball that said, okay, you're, you know, you're going to die on December 2010. Mm -hmm. So we're going to cut off your Medicare in November 2010, that that would save billions of dollars don't you think most people in society would go yeah that's a reasonable trade-off a month of life is not worth fighting for some would even argue a year of life is not worth arguing for depending yeah. on the situation obviously uh and then there was an article in business week last year uh so it's not just you know let's just not pick on the elderly here million dollar babies was the title the cost of care for preemies is sky high sometimes 15 times the expense of full-term infants and rising uh, so they're talking about how it can cost millions of dollars to keep premature, really premature babies alive. The, the, a few years ago, we, they wouldn't have even tried or couldn't. But now because technology is advanced, they can. Right. So that's the question with, with rationing care. Just because you can provide care, should you? Mm -hmm. uh, but again, holy political oh, I know. landmine, Batman. You know, you can talk about it in an economic sense and a societal sense, but who's going to tell those parents, sorry, we could save your baby who's premature, but it's too expensive. Or sorry, you know, your father who's 78 has hit this magical number that the government has determined <laughs> and we're going to cut off his life support. Mm -hmm. Boy. Good luck. Yeah, that is really the third <laughs> rail. But think of the cost associated with that. And it's only going to get worse from a financial perspective right. as technology improve it improves maybe eventually the technology improves to a point where it's cheap to do these things uh but how right. can you not <coughs> tackle this bigger problem without talking about all three of those yeah really you definitely need to yeah so anyway and, and and again that's just one aspect of the issue that's just covering the uninsured you're going to be chasing that goal forever because even if tomorrow we came up with some tax they're talking about taxing soda. Let's say we could tax soda tomorrow and it would cover everybody who doesn't have insurance. 
Well, what about the rising costs for those of us who do have insurance for consumer different plans Mm -hmm. where the percentage of our income that goes to healthcare is going up, you know, to to points that are equaling what you pay for your mortgage. Right. And we're not even talking about that or the efficiency or the quality. So you can see why it hurts at least my head. (laughs) But that's my next question. How and somebody posted this, you know, give Twitter credit because it spurred this question. How much should healthcare marketers know about this stuff? You know, how much should we be on top of these big giant policy questions and understanding where they sit in the national purview? Because I consider myself someone who's fairly bright, who loves to study deep issues. I get Fortune, I get Business Week, I get Harvard Business Review, I read all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I cannot get my arms around this thing. It is so big. Uh, and yeah, so, but how much do I need to? You know, we've had conversations about medical homes and that warps my brain. Somebody um, forwarded a really fascinating blog post. The blog is called Health Reform Watch, put out by Seton Hall Law. Title of it was Grassley, Senator Grassley and Senator Baucus seek to further define the difference between charity care and bad debt for nonprofit hospitals. Meaning hospitals, you know, bad debt is typically referred to the patients that come in and then don't pay their bills. Yeah. And hospitals write off that money. Charity care has typically meant uh, we go out and we provide care for free to underprivileged folks. Mm -hmm. Well, depending on how you define that, it impacts their taxes and it impacts their tax status or could. And should you be lumping bad debt into charity care? In other words, we see these community benefit reports Mm -hmm. and they say, we provide a million dollars of charity care. Well, if they lump bad debt into there, that increases from a marketing perspective, how much you say you're providing a charity care. Right. It even goes on to talk about how some hospitals lump in uh, what they would, the difference between what they would charge for a particular procedure and what insurance reimburses. Mm-hmm. So if we would charge a hundred bucks for this procedure and insurance reimburses us $80, there's $20 of charity care there. Well, I mean, you got to draw a line somewhere. Some of that's yeah. just BS <laughs> because the, the blog post makes a point that nobody pays that hundred dollar rack rate. The only people that would pay it are the people that, aren't paying it because they're charity care. Right. So it's phony. It's Mm kind of like the manufacturer suggested retail price on something (laughs) where Macy's, they say that where Macy's says 60% off. And then in fine print, they say, you know, the actual price might never result in a sale. They have to say that. Right. Because the 60% off is a bogus number. 60% off some inflated number to make you think you're getting a great deal. Yeah. So, I mean, we're really getting the nitty gritty of policy there, but how much, do we need to understand that as marketers? What do you, you got any opinion on that, Jackie? Well, my head was like spinning just trying to follow <laughs> everything you were saying. So, I mean, I think it's always good to be knowledgeable about right. it, but to fully, you know, comprehend everything like you said is just, there's a lot of it. You can certainly question whether these discussions at this level have an impact on how you're evaluated in your job. Mm -hmm. Uh, but especially for those senior folks who show up at the executive table uh, to be able to understand the conversations around bad debt and the impact of the organization uh, or, you know, what would happen if they shifted or defined 
community benefit or charity care and how it's attributed to community benefit and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to be seen as a strategic resource in the organization, you kind of need to be able to follow those conversations. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and it's hard to, to argue sometimes, well, boy, you spend as much time on that, trying to keep up with it as you would <coughs> doing your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would That's say true. that at least being aware of it, especially when that stuff trickles down to what you have to do in your job, uh, I don't know how you couldn't be. Yeah. But there's a lot. It's it's tough stuff. So love to hear from people on their level or their comfort level with, with those kind of topics and how they think that impacts what they do in their organization or whether it should. Yeah. Okay, let's leave that one for now. It's far, <laughs> far too much on health care reform. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about, we're going to be talking more about this as the year goes on, uh, it's been about a year since we published our book, A Marketer's Guide to Brand Strategy. Uh, it came out in the spring of 2008. And I was thinking recently, I th- we're going we're gonna to follow up on that, kind of do maybe an article or a paper or something uh, like a year later to say, well, you know, this book was kind of a primer on how healthcare organizations, particularly hospitals and health systems, uh, should approach developing a brand strategy. But a lot has changed. Yeah in a year it's kind of amazing to think about and how much of that change uh some of which we don't even know how where it's going to land would impact either how you approach developing a brand strategy or what your brand strategy is Mm -hmm. uh so when you think about what's changed what's funny was uh one of the things i had listed in trying to explore this was social media uh the book was written in the fall of 07 it was published in the spring of 08 and it's not meant to be something that you know, in a year or two loses its its impact because it's not that topical. Yeah. Uh, as far as timeliness, it's more of a, again, a primer on how you approach this. But I was nervous. You know, I was thinking about this. I flipped back. I'm like, oh, my gosh, did we even talk about? I hope we talked about social media. And sure <laughs> enough, there it was uh, talking about, you know, trying to understand what your current brand and how it's valued in the market uh, and all the different resources that could help you figure that out. And we do list social media such as MySpace and uh, Facebook. Mm-hmm. So I kind of breathe a, a sigh of relief because I can tell you in the fall of 07, I was neither on Facebook right. or Twitter. Uh, and social media was kind of foreign to me. So, uh, But w- I think it's safe to say since the fall of 2007 or even since this book came out mm-hmm. uh, and now that those, that that media, social media has exploded Definitely. Uh, both generally, right? I mean, Facebook has really taken off. I think I read there was, is it possible there are 200 million? On Facebook? People on Facebook. I, I guess I believe That's it. That's two-thirds of the country. I mean, you got to knock out kids and people that, you know, aren't even able to be on a computer. Well, I mean... Where do you draw the line now? I mean, grandparents are on Facebook and then if they're kids... That and just seems kids almost kids. unfathomable to me. Have, we're going to have to verify that. We'll put that in the show notes whether or not. But I swear I saw. That's insane. That is insane. That's everybody. I mean, that's like that's like adoption of television or phones. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, there's still people that don't have TVs, but I think that's by choice. They don't have TVs, but they're on Facebook. Yes, that could be. <laughs> well, yeah, when you wrote that book, I... It was big. Doubt. I mean, yeah. big. I mean, I've been using it since, you know, for a good five, six years. Since but I you're was in young college. and hip. 
We're talking about, yeah. you know, from a general population, you know, like, <laughs> again, my demographic is the one that's been the, the pig through the snake recently. Right. People 40 to 50 years old who discovered mm-hmm. this thing like it was the brand new. And that was just within the last six months to a year. But from a healthcare marketing standpoint, right. uh, I, I would say it's, you know, if you went back to January of 08, I wonder how much conversation you would see around it. Exactly. Because we yeah. know what it is now. It's still not where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. It's definitely exploded in that realm. Right. And then you think about the economic crisis that that was brewing for a while, but really fell off a cliff in September of 08. Yeah. So it had, doesn't that seem like it's been ages ago? Yeah. We were at Shushmid. Do you remember that? We were at Shushmid. Yep. And Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. I mean, it was like the whole world teetered on collapse yeah, the world was ending and we were at a, at conference, a conference in san francisco <laughs> yeah. it was really surreal but that it was that's been barely well i guess it's been eight months now yeah but it seems like forever ago it does feel like forever uh and the impact that that has had on providers mm-hmm. huge impact and then of course we had the election of obama in november which forced healthcare reform like we talked about a little bit ago into the national spotlight mm-hmm. and all of the ways that that may change uh, so it'll be very interesting to see, talk to people, kind of uh, explore how is that impacting people's approach to branding and brand charts. A couple of things that I can tell you um, haven't changed. We, we still hear people refer to branding in inaccurate ways, equating <laughs> branding to a logo or to advertising. Mm-hmm. Uh, still not very many hospitals and health systems pursuing branding in a strategic manner. Uh, I think one of the things we would argue is that you, you see the financial stress that healthcare organizations are under. They're cutting back their marketing. It's a perfect time to build a brand strategy because that takes about six months to a year. It's not a huge investment of cost. It's mainly in thinking and decision-making. Right. Uh, and it's the precursor to really figuring out, well, how do we get there, which is then followed by how do we go out in the market, mm-hmm. which could be a year, two, three later. Uh, so now's a perfect time to be digging in and looking at who do we want to be when we come out of this. Right. Um, but I'm not sure a lot of people are taking that approach. So we hope to talk to some of the folks we featured in the book to see how things have changed for them, the case studies that were featured in there. Uh, we'd love to hear from people that have read the book or have pursued brand strategy development in the last year to see, you know, from their perspective, how these changes in the industry have impacted them. Uh, but look for more stuff to come from us on that. I would hope that overall it hasn't been impacted dramatically, mm-hmm. meaning the need for it, how you approach it, the value, that that all still holds true, should mm-hmm. hold true through thick and thin. Right. Um, but it'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to, to see what we hear and what we find out. So if you've got stories or you've got insight on that, please let us know. Uh, when we post our podcast, there's a there's a comment section so people can comment right after the podcast or wherever mm-hmm. it says an email or whatever. So uh, I'll be looking for feedback on that. So uh, we do. Our website has a sample chapter of the book too. And we know, you know, we always love feedback on the book and we've heard good things about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that in talking to a lot of organizations after the book was released, who said, well, this is really something we want to do. It was really discouraging because there were so many of them that I had to say, you know, I don't think you're ready. You're really yeah. not ready because it was coming from a, a marketing manager who believes in this, but the CEO didn't have a clue. Yeah. 
or their their most direct supervisor didn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. And we're just a firm believer that if the CEO isn't driving this, best case scenario, or worst case scenario is at least behind it, yeah. it ain't going to take because it's that level of, of strategy and change. So um, I think that's one of the things we'll, that will come out of this is we've learned that a lot of folks just aren't ready for it, which mm-hmm. led to our paper that we came out with uh, last year called Brand Hope, which was, hey, yeah. <laughs> even if you're not quite ready for this, there is hope. There are things you can do at, at varying levels of readiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was something we learned kind of right off the bat. But All right, that's probably a good place to wrap up. Don't you think? Yeah. Anything you want to add? I don't think so. No? Okay. Covered well, a lot. Well, thanks again for joining us at uh, Healthcare Marketing Insights. This is Chris Bevelo. And Jackie Ritaco. And we will talk to you next week. Bye.